Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Down in South America, there is this impressive statue called Christ of the Andes. It's on a border located between two nations, the nation of Chile and Argentina, and it's found some 12,000 feet above sea level in a high mountain pass called La Cundre. And it was put there um, as a symbol of peace and friendship between the two nations that have gone through centuries of conflict over power and land and resources. But as long as Jesus was standing there, there would be an understanding of peace and security and love toward one another. However, soon after Jesus was put in his place, tensions began to boil again. Uh, A beef began to stir and escalate among the peoples again. This time, not so much about the land or the or, or the border, or, or the resources, but over Jesus himself. It started with the Chileans. The Chileans didn't like the placement of the statue. They said that we see the backside of Jesus. And the front side is pointed towards Argentina, with his hand reached out. And this really made a lot of Chileans upset. Until one particular day, a brilliant journalist of the time, decided he would write in his editorial piece the reason for the placement of the statue. Now, this guy was Chilean, and this is what he wrote that kind of put the people at ease and gave them a small laugh, but he said this. He said, the placement of the statue is there because the people of Argentina need more looking after by Jesus than us (laughs) in Chile. And so the argument was quelled. Although I find it interesting, don't you, The dispute over Jesus. This is just a statue, but in the actual case, there are lots of disputes about Jesus Christ. I find it fascinating and maybe even revealing to some degree the type of feelings that are provoked in us when Jesus walks in the room. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are moments where we love this man. We admire this man. We love what he stands for. We respect his compassion for, the, for those who are poor, the mercy he has for those who are sick, and he heals them. In fact, we, we just read about it in Matthew chapter 12. He goes into the synagogue. A man with a shriveled hand is there, but God, Jesus comes and he heals the man. We love this man. We admire him. But then there are other moments where Jesus walks in the room and it's a different feeling. It feels a little bit more unsettling angst, maybe a little bit disturbed, disruptive in our lives. I find myself getting on board with this first Jesus, the Jesus who is the good shepherd who goes out and finds the lost sheep and comes home at sundown with the sheep around his shoulders bringing him home. But the one I struggle with most is Jesus the instigator, Jesus the disruptor. It's hard for us at times to wrap our heads around Jesus as one that's not always nice. He's kind, but he isn't always nice, especially to the culture of our hearts when they become lukewarm or status quo in our lives and our hearts. And I start off this way today because I wanna talk about this Jesus. And let me just say from the get-go, 
We need this Jesus. And I would argue that we need this Jesus today more than ever. And here's why. This is what I've discovered in my own life. If I had a big idea, this would be it. Jesus does his best work in us when we let him disrupt us. How many of you know that to be true? Over the last uh, couple years ago, I did this thing called a life map. Basically, take a sheet of paper, draw a horizontal line, and that represents the whole of your life. And then what you do is you rank positive experiences and negative experiences. The positive experience go above the line. The negative experiences go below the line. And so I started from birth, and I worked my way all the way up into my 20s, into my 30s, almost 40. We won't go there. Um, but we worked my, worked my way through. And one of the things I noticed about my life is I've experienced a lot of painful experiences, a lot of disruption in my life. But I also noticed another thing that it was in the disruption of my life where God used it to transform me more and more into his image. Some of you are going through seasons right now of disruption. Maybe it looks like a dark night of the soul or it's seasons of doubt or it's unraveling of some sort in your life or extraordinary change or dryness. Listen, if you're here today and you're in that place, I just wanna encourage you, your faith is just shipwreck. It's not sunk. And Jesus knows what he's doing. And I understand it's marked by pain. It's marked by all sorts of things in your life. But no question, when I look over my life and I look at my life map, God used these moments to stir something within me, to call something out of me that he just can't resist. Listen, I love the good moments in life. Look at me. I love good times. It's great. But I can tell you this, they're hardly transformational. They're rarely formative. And Jesus cares deeply about your discipleship for you to stay comfortable. And so Jesus will often step into the room and step into your life more like a disruptor. This is exactly what he's doing in Matthew chapter 12. And what I want to do today is I want to give you kind of a guide to help you for these times with Jesus. These disruptive times with Jesus. And this is what I want to do. I want to answer kind of three questions today. I kind of want to kind of shape this talk this way. I want, to, I want to first look at what does disruption look like? What's the anatomy of it? How does this happen? Second, I want to talk about how, what has to happen. You'll realize there's actually a choice to make when Jesus comes in this way in our life, the action of disruption. And then finally, why it must happen. This is where I want to talk about the real gift of disruption today, the aim of disruption. Now, this idea of a disruptor isn't new to us. Uh, if I had a good working definition for us today for disruptor, it would be this. A disruptor is a person who comes in and interrupts and changes things. How many of you have a disruptor in your life? Anybody? Come on. It's okay. Don't raise your hand if it's your husband, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for me, um, it's this little thing. It's my three-year-old little daughter. Don't let that picture fool you, by the way. I'm pretty certain um, God's call on her little life is to disrupt my life. You know, for three years, she's disrupted my sanity, my sleep. No word of a lie, Friday I was trying to have a nap, and uh, that doesn't happen very often. And I was about three minutes on this potential nap when I heard what sounded like someone playing in the toilet. And uh, so I go upstairs, and there's my daughter, and 
you know, for her, you know, for her sake, she is trying to potty train right now. And so she looks at me, Daddy, I got to go pee, she says. What she did was she took all of her clothes off. And instead of peeing on the toilet, she peed on her clothes. <laughs> you know? A disruptor. You have them in your life. We have them also in industry today. This guy right here, you probably don't know who he is. His name's Travis Kalanick. Some of you are like, who's Travis Kalanick? Well, I don't know him either, but you know what he created. It's called Uber. Changed the landscape of ride sharing, didn't he? Or there's Brian Chesney. Brian Chesney. Um, No, that isn't me, by the way. Um, Brian Chesney. He created a little company called Airbnb, right? I mean, when you go out now and you don't go looking for a hotel, it changed your behavior, didn't it? To go looking for an Airbnb. This is what disruptors do. They come in and they change things. They change the way you live, all of it. Even God did this in, in, in all throughout history. He raised up holy disruptors. I think about the Old Testament prophets. Man, did they have a hard message. And then you had reformers, guys like Martin Luther or this guy right here, John Wycliffe. If you do a little bit of research on this guy's life, man, this guy was bold. He went after the Roman Catholic Church at the time because you could only read from Latin, but he decided he was going to you know, turn the Bible into English. He actually burned the stake for all of this, disruptors in our lives. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 12 comes into a society that needs to be disrupted, The Pharisees at the time and the religious leaders of the day had taken the things of God, the things that were supposed to be fluent in God's heart and God's spirit, and they began to put walls around it and scaffolding around it. And then they began to to formulate and create all these rules and all this sort of stuff. And because of their influence, their influence leaked into the rest of the community, and it began to reshape society. And so Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball on their party. And we see this all through the gospel of Matthew. And it comes to a point now, it comes to a head in Matthew chapter 12. Let's look again at what's happening in this text. Again, it says, at the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, I want to stop here for a moment because I have a couple of really important questions. Number one, what in the world are the Pharisees doing in the grain field on the Sabbath? Like, wouldn't you think that you should be in the synagogue doing your job? Like, what are they doing? Are they like hiding behind grain? Like, oh, gotcha. You know, is that what they're doing? Now, I I searched high and low commentaries this week trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And no one had a really good answer. But this is what I believe is happening here. When Jesus disrupts you, it's often because you're in a place you shouldn't be. So Jesus comes to them here, and the confrontation begins in a grain field, not in a synagogue. Now, Jesus and his disciples are in the place they should be. It was in God's law, it was biblical law, that people who were poor could actually go through grain fields and pick out something when they were hungry to eat. You find this in Deuteronomy chapter 3. God had a mercy for those who were poor. And basically, God's law, the biblical law, said that if you're hungry, you can go and 
take from the vine. If there were grapes, you could take a grape here or there. Or, or if you needed grain, you could pluck some grain off and you could eat the grain in your life. Now, what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day is you couldn't thresh. You couldn't take like a, a, like a two-handed katina sword and go chink. You couldn't do that. You couldn't like harvest. That's what you couldn't do on the Sabbath, but you could eat on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath day is important for us as well, right? Because the Sabbath is a day of what? Rest. And in Jesus' law, the only command he gives for a day of rest is that you and I are to cease from doing ordinary work. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, what ordinary work is. But what had happened is in Jesus' day, these Pharisees, these religious experts came along and they said, no, 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 no. We need to help people out. We need to tell them what this actually means for them. And so what they did is they invented 39 other laws on top of God's law. It's called the oral tradition or the Mishnah. And they created this and they had 39 different laws on the Sabbath. And here in Matthew chapter 12, the disciples are breaking four of those oral laws that they made up. The first one was reaping. The second one was threshing. The third one was winnowing. The fourth was preparing food. Now, what does this mean in their mind, in their heart? As soon as you pluck grain, what they were saying was, was that is reaping. As soon as you put the grain in your hand and you rub it together to get the, the grain out, that is called threshing. The moment that you went and blew the chaff away, that was called winnowing. And let me just stop here for a moment. This just sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? But this is the type of heart that these people were, were invoking on the people. The irony of this whole scene is that these Pharisees had made it hard work to keep the Sabbath, which is a day of rest, right? You had to, you had to keep track of all this. You had to remember all this stuff. You had to do all of these things. And so this is the scene that we come to, but there's something else I want you to notice, that this whole thing is not about the Sabbath at all. It's actually about Jesus. Look again, verse 2, it says, look, your disciples, they're going after Jesus here, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. A little bit later, it says that they were trying to test Jesus so they could capture him. Remember the last statement? They went to plot against Jesus. This is about Jesus. What they're after in Jesus is they are do not like this man because he's a disruptor. He's one who has come in and has started to kind of put chinks in their ecosystem where they have control over the people. And he's been doing this all along through the gospel of Matthew. Even the Sermon on the Mount, you see this. Phrases in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear Jesus say things like this. You have heard it said, dot, 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 but I tell you. What's he doing? Disrupting. Matthew chapter 9, we see this, another issue the Pharisees have with Jesus and his disciples, this time over fasting. And Jesus tells a series of short stories, and he ends with this most famous one where he says, you cannot put new wine in old wineskins. What's he saying? He's saying, I have come to disrupt and dismantle and to disarm this system that you have put in, and it's causing a burden on yourselves and on the people. Now, Jesus answers here quite incredibly. Uh, this would be a modern version of Jesus saying, boom, roasted, if you know what I'm talking about, right? Look what he says. 
He, says, he answered and he says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? By the way, that phrase that Jesus says to the Pharisees, haven't you read, appears nine times in the Gospel of Matthew. What's he saying? He, think about this. He's talking to experts in the Bible. And he's saying, haven't you read? Aren't you smart enough? Don't you see this already? And then he invokes David. Now, why is that important? Because David and the people in, in that time, David was this messianic figure. So the moment you talked about David, ears up, we're listening. And then Jesus goes on to kind of tell a story about David's David's life, of course, you know the story of David. David was an anointed king, but he wasn't the enthroned king yet. Saul was still on the throne, and Saul got mad at David and, of course, chased him all across the Israel and all of these different places. And there was this time, and we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David is hungry, and so he goes into a temple or a synagogue or a tabernacle, and there's showbread there at the time. Uh, we read this in the book of Leviticus, that part of the worship of the people was to bake bread, and it was special bread given unto the Lord. But they came in, and it hadn't been, it hadn't been the Sabbath yet, and the priests agreed to let him eat it. It was only preserved for the priests. But the priests were okay with it. And Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, David did this. David did something on the Sabbath. And then he invokes another kind of story here, and he kind of goes after them. He says, haven't you read in the law that the priest on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet you are in innocent? What is he saying here? He's basically saying, when you, let's go down to the temple right now, folks, and let's see who's doing some stuff down there. All of these different Levitical priests doing what they're doing. They're working on the Sabbath. Are you catching what he's trying to do here? He's trying to dismantle them at their own game. This is so punk rock of Jesus. I love it, right? But then he says this, look at this, verse 6, and this is where things get really incredible. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For, this is huge, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This would have knocked their socks off if they were wearing socks. They were probably wearing sandals. This is huge. This is radical. What Jesus is saying here, he's basically saying, there's someone here that is greater than David. There's someone here that is greater than the temple. There's someone here that's even greater than the institution in the Sabbath. There's someone greater here, and that person is me. This is huge. This is revolutionary. I don't think we fully understand how revolutionary this statement is. And then what even, it goes even crazy, like he goes for the jugular here because this is what he does. Not only is this disciples breaking the law, now he decides to break the law, their law himself. He goes into the temple and another law that they had created is you can't heal on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus do? He leaves the grain field, goes right into the center of the action of the synagogue and heals a man. Like, I love this Jesus, you know? But I'm telling you all this to say that Jesus is a disruptor. And this is him disrupting at his best. Now, hear me on this. He's not being rough and tumble here. What Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to do away with self-inflicted burdens so that you and I can experience blessing. 
Like what is on God's true heart for you and for, the, and for the community? And the invitation that we see here today is that Jesus is trying through disruption, whether you, in your life and my life, is he's trying to recover the heartbeat of the kingdom of God and call us back to placing him at the center of everything. That's what he's doing in disruption. You feel it too, don't you? You ever, you ever experienced that in your life? I know I have. What I wanna do is just give you a few pointers as for the last few minutes that I have. And I wanna talk about how disruption actually happens. I wanna show you a couple pictures here. But this is what I would say about disruption. Disruption happens when Jesus collides into our built-up ways of control and self-sufficiency that are leading us away from truly leaning on him. He comes in and he collides. Now some of you are like, man, collide. That sounds abrupt. It is abrupt. How many of you know that the nature of the kingdom of God is actually abrupt? We talk about the kingdom of God a lot in our own church, but the kingdom of God, when it comes, we talk about it breaking in, coming upon us. Like when Jesus comes in the the first of the gospels and he says, hey, repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, this isn't Jesus coming in and saying, hey guys, um, listen, there's this little movement I want to start. Just wondering if I can... uh, with your permission, if I could do this. No. The kingdom of God breaks in. It comes upon us. I love what Alan Hirsch says in his book, The Faith of Leap. He says this, the kingdom of God is a crash-bang opera. The king is dramatic, demanding, and unavoidable. Jesus comes and he presses himself onto our lives. And when he does, listen, this is what happens. It starts to get a little bit tense, doesn't it? There's tension that forms in our life. Let me just show you this picture. This is what it looks like. There's me and my kingdom, which is comprised by my experiences, my worldview, my family of origin, my personality, my identity, all of that. All of those things. And by the way, all of us have biased and preconceived things about us because of the culture that you and I grew up in. We live in a secular world. We live in a hyper-individualistic world. We live in a weak form society, meaning everything is built in our families around the individual rather than the collective. All of those things give us biases to Jesus and are actually counter to his way. And I'm not saying that to shame anybody. That's just reality. And so when Jesus comes racing in, when the kingdom of God and Jesus comes in, oftentimes it feels absolutely disruptive. But when it happens, church, listen to me, we have two things that can happen. Number one, we can either let him in or keep him out. It's that simple. We can let him in or we can keep him out. We can, as I want to call it, we can let rupture happen in our lives. Not rapture, rupture. We let the kingdom come into our lives and our hearts. Let me show you this. And when we let rupture happen in our lives, when we allow the kingdom of God to press in to our lives, and we, when we let that happen, transformation is possible. Transformation happens. The possibility of my heart being changed and formed into his is possible. But when I don't let rupture happen, calcification happens. Now you're saying, well, that's a big word. Well, calcification is used for anatomy. You know how your tissues are supposed to be soft and they're supposed to be like pliable in you. Well, calcification happens in your body when your tissues start to get hard and crusty and it becomes dangerous to the rest of your body. 
And so when you don't let rupture happen, oftentimes we, we, we put up even stronger barriers. We become even more hard to what God is doing. And rather letting God's heart shape us, we let our hearts continue to inform us. Calcification happens. Not just physically, it can happen spiritually as well. Now, I don't have a slide for this, but let me just tell you how calcification can happen in your spiritual life. First and foremost, this is what happens. And this happened with the Pharisees too, by the way. It starts when you set God's standards to a place that is low and manageable. And then you normalize that as holiness. Hear me. You set his standards low and manageable, and then you claim that to be holy. But there's a problem with that. You get to a place where you're comfortable and then all you have left is ritual and rigidity. And let me tell you, church, this is where the death trap starts because ritualism without relationship leads to paralysis. It can lead to a cold heart. And it's easy for us to kind of sit up here and sit here today and look at these Pharisees and be like, you guys are dumb. Like, this is the son of God standing in front of you. Why don't you do something about this, but the reality is, is that all of us can be tempted this way. All of us will be, will be tempted to do this in some form or, or, or fashion, if not now, sometime. And listen, here's the temptation. The temptation for this calcification does not come when life is disrupted. It comes when your life is comfortable. Because what you do is you fall in love with comfort. And then you create a, a world around that type of comfort in your life. You begin to formulize your faith with Jesus. You begin to put domestication on Jesus himself. And it causes you not to move forward in him. And let me just say, church, as you step forward with Jesus, it will cost you. And at times it will feel painful. And there are days you just don't feel like doing it. And so to make ourselves comfortable and feel better, we put up formulas and rituals and all of it in the name of Jesus too, by the way. For some of us, we're here today and we come and we say things like, God loves me. And that's great, you know the love of God, but we say it in such a way that God loves me, therefore I don't have to do anything. And so we stay stuck in that. Others of you, you're like me. I kind of come from this, you know, this angle of, well, if I do A plus B plus C, if I do all of these things, and I just keep working and I keep striving that everything is going to be okay. But here's the problem with formulas. God cannot fit in a formula. God does not fit in a box. How many of you know that to be true? One thing I'm learning in my life is that if I think I have Jesus all figured out, it's probably a dangerous place to be. But it's a common place. And what we see in our text today and what we've seen all through the Gospel of Matthew is this striking, shocking reality. And the reality is this, that Jesus doesn't often come the way we expect him to come. That he isn't always the Jesus we expect him to be. And over and over again, when people don't receive that reality or live in that reality most people end up missing him completely or they fall into some illusion of who they think Jesus is or they get disappointed and that deters them from actually living out the kingdom life altogether. The reality is, church, that we will encounter moments when we are confronted with this Jesus who disrupts us and he isn't who we thought he would be. Moments where the cancer returns 
and you thought he was a healer and he cared for you. Moments when you thought he was okay with what you were doing in your life and then all of a sudden he says, no, 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 pick up your cross and follow me. Moments when he or she leaves and there's no amount of begging that can move the heart of God to win them back. Moments when you thought that he would rescue you from suffering in your life, but instead you realize that he's ordered the universe with such a wild freedom that this wild freedom has potential to hurt us. Moments when you thought Jesus loved those who loved and uh, who you loved and hated those who you hated. The moments where you thought Jesus stood on the platforms you supported and he doesn't. And ultimately what happens here is your expectations and your thoughts of Jesus will come crashing down only to reveal who he really is. And let me just say this today. His, who he really is is far better than who you think he is. I say this because this Jesus, the disruptor, will come in and he cuts against the grain of who you want him to be. Not because he's playing some cruel and mean game with you, but at the heart of everything with Jesus, everything is done in relationship. Everything. Listen, the formula and the predictability that the Pharisees got into kept them from intimacy with Jesus. It kept them from trusting and looking to him and leaning on him and believing on him, but totally continuing to live this sort of quasi-faith out, uh, living according to their own selves. And if we aren't careful, this can also happen to us. He's not willing to risk it either. He loves us too much to be predictable for us. He is so for us to the point that he's not willing to be reasoned or allow us to reason him or measure him in any way. This Jesus that we're talking about here in the Gospels is also wild and beautiful and righteous and he is our king. And this king comes and he's disruptive because he loves us. He loves us. So if you're walking in those seasons right now where you find it hard, it is hard. Supposed to be hard. But when I let rupture happen, this is what's going on. When I truly let his kingdom come, I'm simultaneously saying I'm letting my kingdom go. And let me tell you something, church. When a lot of people start living like this, get ready for a move of God. Love what John Tyson said. I listened to an interview of him this past week. John Tyson is a pastor at the Church of the City in, in New York City. He said this. He said, you know it's a move of God when you are no longer in control of the encounter. And I wonder if there's some of us here today, we're in this season right now, and you've been fighting, and you've been saying it's my situation, it's my whatever it may be, and I wonder if who you've actually been wrestling is Jesus. And I just feel compelled to tell you today, just let it happen. Let the rupture happen. Let him come in. Do you let him in or do you keep him out? Now, I want to close today with this thought. Why does he do this? Why must this happen? Why does Jesus disrupt our lives? And what I've come to grips with, and this is, I think, the gift of a holy disruption is that when Jesus comes to disrupt my life, it stirs something within me that he can't resist, and that is a hunger for him. A hunger for 
God. What's interesting about this entire text, even from the very beginning, you've probably already noticed, haven't you? There was one word kind of highlighted the entire time that we haven't even touched yet. But this entire scene, this entire encounter began because people were hungry. Did you, did you catch that? Let me show you again. It was in the first, uh, uh, or, or verse one. At the time, Jesus went to the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were what? Hungry. They were hungry. Get that vision, uh, that picture in your mind of, of the disciples hungry, reaching out for grain. He's re- they're reaching out for it. They're grabbing the grain. But then look, look what happens in verse 13. Then he said to the man, again, in the synagogue, the guy with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. That's hunger, my friends. That's hunger. A little bit later on in verse 15, which we didn't cover, there's actually after the synagogue scene, Jesus goes to an isolated place. He kind of gets out of there for a while. And the Bible says a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. People going after him, people reaching out to him. Folks, that's hunger. That's hunger. This is what disruption, this is the gift of disruption. The gift of disruption is that it creates hunger in you and I. It conjures up something in us that we cannot conjure up in ourselves. And this is a good thing because Jesus can't resist hunger. He cannot resist hungry people in their life. Disruption creates a hunger that wasn't there before or that has been lost. But to close today, I want to ask a question here. How do we become hungry? again, for God. How do we become hungry when we're not hungry? Let me say this. A formula will not do in your heart because your heart was not made for formula. It was made for fire. So the prayer we pray is set a fire in my soul, in my heart. And the way that we recapture hunger is we become all flame. What do I mean by that? I mean we have to normalize again spiritual passion and enjoy the love of God because it is the love of God. I think the reason this doesn't happen a lot in our day is because we're too busy. Or like the Pharisees, we set our standards way too low. And over time, we just sort of domesticate Jesus. Let me just say something. When I open the Gospels, I do not see a domesticated man in Jesus. This is a man who is on a mission. You see him in the temple? When he cleanses the temple? I mean, he is thrashing things. Like, he's throwing things over. And one gospel writer says it was the zeal of the Lord on him. Passionate. The Holy Spirit is not just some gentleman. We say that all the time. He's gentle. And I know the Holy Spirit is gentle. But, man, he is a fire in a wind. I wasn't on the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and just says, all right, folks, um, I'd like to do a little Pentecost here for you. No, no, no. He comes crashing in. It is a holy disruption. Even the Father himself, the description of the Father, and I think the best one is what Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke, where it says that a son was a long way off 
but the father saw him and he ran to him. This idea of the father being kind of domesticated is so, un- it's just so unusual. But in that day, a father would not bear his legs. But this running, hugging, kissing father basically embarrassed himself to run to the child, to his son, to tell him to come home. You don't think for a moment that this God is not passionate. He is not domesticated. And my heart is, is that our hearts would match his heart. The same passion that God has is the same passion his people have. So if you want to become hungry, pursue the flame. Become all Second thing I would say, you want to become hungry, get around people who are hungry. Listen, if you hang out with cynical, lukewarm people, guess what you're going to become? I'm not saying that to shame anybody. That's just, there's psychology behind all this too, for real. Like you take the traits of the people that you hang around with. But when you get around people who are passionate when you get around people who really love God with all of their heart, when you get yourself into an environment where that happens, man, does it ever do something in me. Listen, this is why we have prayer rooms at some of our locations. It's why Pastor Dan leads a prayer room here on Wednesday nights. It's why I lead a prayer room in Halifax on Tuesday nights. Yeah, so we can pray, but no, it's also an environment where I can get around hungry people. Some of us spend way too much time on Netflix And I think in this season, God is wanting to stir our hunger again, but it's just not gonna happen like that. See, hunger is, it doesn't just happen to you. Hunger has to be instigated in you. And when it's instigated, it has to be cultivated. Otherwise, it goes away. So get around people who are hungry. I go to our prayer room some Tuesday nights, and I'm like, oh, man, this is hard. I don't want to be here, but I get there and there's a spark in someone else that hits my heart and man, does my heart just start to become a flame for him again. You want to get hungry, become all flame and then get around people who are hungry. And then the third one, and I think this is a key for our day, maybe, I don't know, but we have to seek him together. Your relationship to Jesus is not some private enterprise. It's a communal thing. And we have to seek him together. This past Tuesday, some of us pastors at King's Church were part of a kind of a pastor's gathering in Truro. And we got together, we, there was a call given, issued out across the Maritimes for pastors to come together. And the whole time was just about prayer and worship, and quite honestly, it was to say, Jesus, come disrupt us. (laughs) Come do something in us. We were together for four or five hours just worshiping and praying together, and man, there was a word given, and I thought it was a prophetic image for our time and maybe even for our region, but one guy got up and he shared, he said, I see little flames from all over the region coming together to form one big flame. And I got thinking, that's a call for the church to seek him together, to stir one another's hunger. And disruption has a way of creating hunger in me that wasn't there before. And Jesus does that because he cannot resist that hunger in you. 
And so today, the call that I want to end with is just simply to stir hunger. Stir hunger. God is looking for those whose hearts are after him in our day. I think of what 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, when, he, when, when the Lord said to the people, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Do you hear this? God is like, where, where are my people at? I have strength, I have mercy, I have grace, I have love that needs to be poured out. Where are they? And if you get enough people who want all of God in their heart, in a church, the church will catch fire. Can I just say this over us? We want to be that church. Amen? This is what Joel's getting at in Joel chapter 2. He says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart. Let rupture happen in your heart as I come and press myself upon you. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That is the promise of God today for those who are hungry, for those who are hungry today. This is what I want to do to close. I wanna just invite us together collectively uh, for God to just search our hearts. Uh, Psalm 139 um, says this, search me God and know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. I just wanna do that today. Can we do that together as a, as a community? Just say, God, search us. Like come in, drop in, search our hearts. We need God to search us and the reason for that is because we live in a culture where the bar is so low that a barely Christian looks like a saint. I don't know about you, but I want my heart tuned to his. So why don't we just take a moment. I'm going to invite you to stand right now, and we're just going to invite the Lord to search our hearts to, together collectively. Listen, I know we can do this on our own. I know we can go home and ask God to search our hearts in our prayer closet. But I really believe there is a key in seeking the Lord together right now. So we just say, search our hearts, oh God. God, I ask for a loving conviction to drop down in this room right now. God, I pray for for those maybe who have been concealing sin in their life. And God, you want a pure heart. You want a heart that is clean and free of all of that bondage in our life. And I just pray for the one today to be able to confess that, not as, an, as a place of shame, but as an act of freedom. God, I pray for the one who has shards of, of just stuff that has cut into heart because of our hearts because of relationships. God, would you remove those shards from our hearts, those places of glass and pebbles and things that have been thrown at us and tossed at us. And God, would you replace that with your liquid love into our hearts? God, it's not, it's not unbeknownst to me that we came into this place today and we have lived for six, seven days in a world that has power and pull and a call has been placed on lesser loves for us to pursue those and to give our allegiance to those things. God, we just pray 
would you upturn our hearts in a way that every idol that would be there would be cast down? Oh God, would you come and search our hearts today? Search our hearts, God. God, would you instigate something in us that we cannot instigate in ourselves, and that is a pure hunger for you. God, I pray that in my own heart, in my own life, I need you to come. If that means disruption, then let it be so. Pray this today. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you love us. You love us enough not to, you love us and you love our discipleship enough that you're not willing to let us look like cheap versions of you. And so you come in and you disrupt our lives. And as we let you come in, God, man, transformation can happen. So we thank you today for your promises. We thank you that you love us and you care for us. We just bless your presence right now. We just bless your presence right now. We just let you in right now. We let you into our hearts right now. Thank you, Lord. Praise you today. And all of God's people said, amen.